Are you headed for heaven? Are you headed for heaven? Uh, that was a question that a friend of mine uh, used to ask uh, students back at my university. We'd go down to the main foyer at a lunchtime on a Friday, and we'd try to strike up conversations uh, with others, try and talk to them about Jesus. And the way we'd start these conversations is we'd ask that question, are you headed for heaven? And if the person we're speaking to actually wanted to engage with us, uh, they'd usually respond positively. Yeah, yes, yeah, I think I'm going, to, I am heading for heaven. Uh, and the reason why would be, well, I'm, I'm a good guy. I don't break any serious laws. I pay my bills. I try to help my neighbor. I, I, yeah, I reckon I'll get to heaven. But then uh, my friend would ask a follow-up question. He, he would ask them, do you think that God will accept you into his heaven on your terms or his? Will God accept you into his heaven on your terms or his? And that got them thinking. They knew the answer, of course. God's heaven, well then God's terms of entry. But then they'd be left with that uncomfortable question, what are God's terms? What are God's terms for us to be accepted by him? In our verses today, God begins to set the terms for Israel as his chosen nation. They will be his people, but it will be on his terms, no one else's. And so now we've reached a turning point in the story of Exodus. The past 18 chapters have retold God's mighty deliverance of Israel from slavery. In Egypt, how Israel had grown into that great nation, and then God had called Moses as his servant to bring Israel, his people, out of slavery. Pharaoh, of course, refused to let the people go, but God humbled him by those devastating plagues, followed by crushing Pharaoh's army under the waves of the Red Sea. And now, three months later, having rescued Israel from Egypt's clutches, well, they reach the mountain. Come with me to Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. If you remember, if you've been here for the past few weeks as we've been doing this series in Exodus, what, what, what God had promised Moses through his appearing in the burning bush. All the way back in Exodus 3 verse 12, he said, God said to Moses, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And here we see that promise of God to Moses fulfilled. Just, just as God had drawn Moses close to himself back in Exodus 3, well, now he draws Israel, his people, close to himself in order to make them his own nation. And they might know his blessing and carry through his purposes for the world. And it's going to be a long inauguration for Israel. You see, they stay put here at Mount Sinai for an entire year as they receive God's instructions by Moses. Uh, what we have in our Bibles, what we read from this point all the way to the end of Exodus and then all the way through Leviticus and on to Numbers chapter 11, uh, where Israel set out again on their way to the promised lands. Uh, what we have here this morning in Exodus 19 is, is merely just the opening ceremony. Israel's inauguration as God's chosen 
people. And we can bring this ceremony of theirs down, we can break it down into three parts. Firstly, God establishes his people. He, he ratifies his covenant with them. That's in verses four to nine. Uh, then secondly, God prepares his people and he gets them ready to meet with him in verses 10 to 15. And then finally, uh, the third part, God draws near to his people. Israel meet their God for the first time in verses 16 to 25. And, and throughout this, this opening ceremony, Moses will act as he has done as the mediator for Israel. He will be going up and down the mountain three times to relay what God has to say to his people before he draws close to them. So firstly, God establishes his people in verses four to nine. Uh, he, he gives them this series of terms. It's, it's like an initial treaty for them to acknowledge as his chosen people. And the first term, it, it's all about what God has done for them. It's not an expectation of Israel, not something that they have to do to become God's people, but rather what God has done to make Israel his people. Verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Friends, Israel became God's people entirely by his initiative, established on what he has done. Israel were helpless. They were slaves under a cruel oppressor. And God in his mercy and in faithfulness to his promises rescued them to himself. Uh, pictured for us here like an eagle who cares greatly for her young and is, but is a terrifying force to her young's enemies. So God had saved his people through his mighty judgment on Egypt. Israel has to remember, first of all, at this critical point in their creation as a nation, that they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai now, entering into this, this covenant with God entirely as a result of his grace, his undeserved favour. It's all about what God has done. But precisely because God has chosen Israel to be his people, well, so now he gives them a condition they are to meet as his chosen people. As his redeemed people, they are to bear allegiance to him, to Yahweh, as their God. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Uh, Israel are to show that they are God's people, that they trust him and love him as their Lord by keeping his covenant, uh, obeying his words to them by Moses. Uh, The the law summarized in the the Ten Commandments, uh, what we have in chapter 20, uh, and if they live by his law faithfully, then end of verse 5, you will be my treasured possession. Treasured possession was the the king's most valuable private commodity in his entire kingdom. Uh, Now, the closest thing I have to a treasured possession uh, is back home in my kitchen, my espresso maker. That is my treasured possession. And my family can tell it's my treasure possession more than anything else that I own because I really look after it. I'll clean its surface every morning with a warm cloth. Uh, the, the insert tray, which you need to remove to clean, that gets a thorough wash in the dishwasher every week. And I delight in the pure espresso coffee that it produces for me each morning. I delight in my espresso machine. Very sad. Now, I love my I love my wife. 
and I love my son, but they know that the espresso maker has a special place in my heart. Well, that is what Israel would be to God, his treasured possession. Though every nation of the earth belongs to him, he gave life to all mankind, that Israel would be his treasured nation. They would experience him and the blessing of his rule in a way that at this time the other nations would not. Just as God had promised Abraham all those years before that his descendants would know God as their God and the place of his blessing and their God would secure them from all of their enemies as they remained faithful to him. They would be his treasured possession. But that doesn't mean the world outside wouldn't benefit in any way as Israel know God as their God. You remember God promised Abraham that through his descendants, Israel now, all the families of the earth would somehow be blessed. And we have this second title that God bestows upon Israel as they, as they remain faithful to him. Not only will they be a treasure possession, verse 6, a kingdom of priests. Israel would serve as God's representative to the world. See, God's concern is that as, as the world outside looks at his chosen nation, Israel, as they see Israel, they're given some idea of what God is like. The question is how? How, how, would, how would Israel represent God to the nations? Well, they would do so as they live, verse 6 again, as God's holy nation. A holy nation. If they obeyed God, they would become a holy nation to him. To, to be holy means to be set apart. As the Israelites dedicate themselves to God, they would become very distinct, set apart from the nations around them. As they follow his laws, rather than uh, the understanding of other nations in their sin, as they follow God's moral will for them, well, so they will be a powerful witness to God's goodness and love his character to the world outside. And I want us to really notice that here, that holiness, godliness for God's people, it's not just the right response for those who have been saved by God. It is also a powerful witness, a powerful witness to others. As God's people live distinct, holy lives for him, they are a living witness of who God is to those around them. So Moses has got the first message from God for the people. In verse 7, he, he returns to the elders who then relay all that Moses has heard. In verse 8, the people respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's an incredible statement of, of faith given their track record so far. You remember since leaving Egypt, they have whined and grumbled against Moses and God time and again. Exodus 14, uh, they're being chased by the Egyptian army and they call out to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Exodus 16, they're hungry as they're wandering toward Mount Sinai. Why did you bring us out to die, Moses? And then the following chapter, they're thirsty again. Why did you bring us out to die, Moses? God provided rescue. And relief every time for his people, but still they grumbled. They did not trust him. Up to this point, Israel had not demonstrated a healthy fear of Yahweh, their Lord. 
And that meant that often they didn't respect Moses, his chosen leader for them, either. See, God wants them to know for sure that even at this point, he is with Moses. And Moses will continue in his crucial role as a mediator for God's people. They need to pay attention to him if they're going to benefit from knowing God as their God. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear you when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. God is going to come down to Moses, and the people are going to witness this encounter. They're going to hear God speak to Moses, his servant, their leader. So God now prepares his people. And friends, no one comes into God's holy presence casually. Now we come to him on his terms. We, we, we can appreciate that basic truth even in the way we relate to human leaders, can't we? We come into their presence of, of great worldly authority when they want us to and how they want us to, never on our terms. Remember last year I was invited to meet uh, Prince William and Princess Kate. Uh, it was uh, the celebration of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and they had come across to Malaysia. Uh, and I was invited to represent uh, the church, the Anglican Church in West Malaysia, at, at this function. Uh, and so an instruction came to me, uh, and it had some very serious uh, instructions on it, this invitation. Firstly, arrive sharp at 11 a.m. You know, so you get Malaysian time out the window. With this meeting, the clock mattered. Tardiness would not be tolerated. I had to be on time out of respect for the royal couple. Next instruction, strict formal dress code. I had to dress very formally. And because I was representing the Anglican Church at this function, that meant I'd wear shoes, trousers, jacket, and a decent shirt with a dog collar. But, you know, given that I was meeting the future King of England and his wife, his princess, I went further. I got a haircut, I washed my face properly that morning. I was even tempted to get my teeth polished, but ah, probably a step too far. I followed all the instructions I was given on that invitation. Dressed up in my best shoe, polished my shoes, and I was, I, I was there on the doorstep of the British High Commission at 11 o'clock on the dot. But as I was greeted, uh, I wasn't taken to see the royal couple straight away. I was taken into another room with the group that were meeting them with me. And this rather large, well-built man, not the kind you want to mess with, he approached us and he gave us another briefing. He explained to us what we had to do when we came into the presence of the royal couple. Uh, we had to start by bowing out of respect when they approached us. And then we were only to speak to them, the royal couple, if spoken to. And uh, as we did that, we had to keep a safe distance. No sudden movements, otherwise this, this lovely large man would intervene very quickly and I would be leaving by the nearest window. So much to take on board to meet a mere earthly ruler, Prince William and his wife, Catherine. Israel are about to meet with the God of all creation. Uh, the God who has decided the plans and purposes of every earthly ruler since the dawn of time. This is an infinitely more serious meeting than my meeting 
the Royal Couple last year. Not just because Israel are about to meet the greatest authority there is, but also because of their sheer unworthiness in God's presence. See, Israel, like us, are those who have lived under the curse of sin and death before God. Like us, we have, like, like them, we have failed to love God as we should, to trust and fear and obey him, to have him as our God, the God of our lives. For Israel, that was shown, wasn't it, in their grumblings against him on the way to Mount Sinai, not trust and faith and worship and honour, but disbelief and disobedience. Well, none of Israel were worthy to stand in God's holy presence and live, any different from us in honour of ourselves. So Israel are now given their instructions to prepare for this incredible meeting with their holy God. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Uh, so Israel, they're, they're to consecrate themselves literally to make themselves holy, clean by washing their garments. Not a quick 80 minute spin in the wash dry cycle. No, no, no. They are to wash their garments for two days. Thoroughly clean them, bleach them whiter than white. And, and then we have this further instruction from Moses later in verse 15. Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And, and by that, Moses does mean don't have sexual relations before you meet with God. Now, friends, that doesn't mean God is against sex. God created sex. It, it is a gift of, of the wonderful physical union between a husband and a wife. It's a gift from God, and it's a great blessing when practiced in the context that, that he intended it for. But friends, remember, God sets the terms for how he is to be approached. For Moses at the burning bush, it was necessary for him to, to remove his hat sandals in the presence of God. Now, many of us here today will be pleased to know that there's nothing sinful, and nothing inherently sinful, about wearing sandals. But God sets the terms of how he is to be approached by his people. And for Israel, well, they are told to abstain from sex before approaching God on the third day. These are his terms for his people at this time. So that's the first command. Israel are to consecrate themselves. And then the second command comes in the form of a warning, a very severe warning in verse 12. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You're much like I had to keep uh, my distance from the, from the royal couple. So even as, as God draws Israel close to him, there is a necessary distance to be observed. They must not go up onto the mountain. They must not even touch it. Because the mountain itself, when God descends on it, will be holy by his presence. Israel, no matter how much they wash themselves and how much they abstain from sex, they will not be able to remove the guilt of their sin in those actions. And so if they come into contact with God's mountain, if they get too close, well, then they will be consumed by his fierce purity. And holiness. God cannot abide sin and unrighteousness, wickedness, 
in his presence. Satisfaction must be made for it. And the only fitting punishment for sin, as we know from God's word, is death. Under God's just wrath. And so this necessary distance, this barrier has to be installed so that the people are protected from the holiness of God. Well, the preparations are done and the third day arrives. Our third point, God draws near to his people. I'll read from verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the mountain drew la- grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. <laughs> it's, it's as if Israel have been led by Moses to the, to the foot of a volcano only to watch it explode before their very eyes. We have dark, thick smoke bellowing from a, a great fire on top of the mountain with thunder and lightning. And God speaks out of the thunder to Moses. Imagine a voice as loud as a continuous thunderclap. And of course, all the people in the camp, they naturally, they tremble with fear. And in the light of God's fierce holiness that we see here, we see two ways by which distance is established between God and his people. Two ways. Firstly, they can't come close to God. And then secondly, they won't come close to God anyway. They can't come close, and they won't come close. Firstly, they can't. That's what we have in verses 21 to 25. God repeats his warning of distance that Moses is to take down again to the people. Uh, Aaron is allowed up with Moses this time. It's possibly a sign of the priestly role he and his family will have for Israel in, in continuing generations in the temple. But second half of verse 24, do not let the priests and the people break through and come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. Uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at uh, the Ten Commandments. For now, I just want us to notice that those commandments that are spoken by God and his people here at the foot of the mountain, they are the only words that the people hear from God directly. Just flick over to 20 verse 18 and see why. See, after uh, God speaks the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, Israel respond like this in verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Not only can Israel not come close to God, they won't in fear anyway. They beg Moses that no further word be spoken from God directly to them. And Moses informs them in verse 20 that that, that God has done this. He has spoken in their presence to test them, to put his fear into them, that witnessing him, his terrifying holiness, or they'll be mindful of it from this point, and they would flee from sin. They would honour the covenant he's making with them. But verse 21 The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That's the opening inaugural ceremony for Israel as God's nation. Here, God has established his relationship with them. 
And they've responded. All that the Lord says, we will do. God instructed them in how to approach him, and they followed those instructions to the letter. And God has drawn near to them, and Israel, in response, has shown a healthy and appropriate, a reverent fear of God. Three out of three. That seems like a great start, doesn't it, for, for Israel at this time? But if you've read the rest of their story in the Old Testament, you'll know Israel do not go well with the Lord throughout their time under this covenant he is established with them, he is establishing with them here. As God's people, they turn out not to be law keepers, obedient to God's words, but rather law breakers who reject his word and desire other things. Instead of being a kingdom of priests, holy for God, uh, witnessing his faithful and loving character to the nations around them, they become just like those nations around them, worshipping idols, living as they see fit. Uh, And as for how they continue to approach him, well, Israel just become a joke before God. They abuse the instructions that God is about to give them to relate to him. Uh, God God would speak to them later by Isaiah saying, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Israel would use the rituals of God's law as a cover. Just do the washings, offer the sacrifices, observe the temple rituals, the empty and, and what were they in the end? Well, empty gestures. There was no genuine heart of love for God and fear for him behind those actions. No, they refused to love God and their neighbour from the heart. That's what Jesus tells us is the very aim of the law that God will give them. To love God and to love their neighbour. But in their sin, they don't. The rules God gives to Israel to live by become just an excuse for further sin doesn't deal with the real problem deep down in their hearts, that they are a deeply rebellious people. And they do not honour God as they should, much like us. Their continual lack of fear before him led to one inevitable outcome. Eventually Israel are put out, they are thrown out of the land that God gives to them to experience the blessing of his rule and his provision. They are put away from that and they go back into slavery again under another harsh foreign rule. And throughout Israel's history, it becomes clear they need a mediator like Moses, not simply one who enables them to hear God's words without fear. No, they need a mediator who will reconcile them to God from the heart, who will deal with the problem of their sin once and for all, and somehow make it possible for them to have new hearts that desire God, that delight to do his law that is best, rather than run back into sin that leads only to misery and death. They need one to come and make them holy. And only one mediator has ever achieved that kind of rescue, friends. He he was mentioned for us in our New Testament reading from Hebrews 12. Uh, Hebrews was a letter, it was first written to Christians who were tempted to forsake Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Well, we're not sure why, 
but it's likely they were somehow being encouraged to uh, uh, turn away from Christ and instead rely on observing God's law and to put their hope in their own personal obedience to God. Be a good Jew. God will accept you. Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to save us from that kind of misery. The slavery of trying to keep rules to get right with God. Now, we don't have time, of course, to look at all of the arguments in Hebrews, but I just want us to focus on what we read in Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Just flick over to page 1009. And in, in verses 18 to 21, uh, we see the, the terrifying events of Mount Sinai from, from Exodus 19 recounted. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, that command, do not touch the mountain lest you die. Down in verse 21, we're told that even Moses was terrified and said, I tremble with fear. But then we have a great contrast in verse 22. God's people today have come not to Mount Sinai, to terror and fear, but to a very different reality. Spoken in the terms of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the, the heavenly Jerusalem. Images that, that speak of intimate fellowship and relationship with God in the place of his blessing and security. And what is it that's made the difference uh, for the Christians of Hebrews, for us as, a, as Christians today? Well, down in verse 24, it's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and his sprinkled blood. Israel's priests, they, they would sprinkle the blood of animals to atone for the sins of the people. But Jesus is our true high priest. The one who, as our, as our high priest, who mediates on our behalf before God, he, he, he mediated us to God by, by offering up himself. His holy blood shed for us at the cross as the one who, who alone kept God's law, the only true covenant keeper, but then offered himself in our place at the cross to bear the judgment for our sins, to deal with the punishment that we deserved and so establish a new covenant between us and God by his blood. Remember how Israel prepared themselves for the third day, but that day when they met God at the mountain full of fear and distance. Well, after Jesus died and was buried three days and then rose again on the third day, well, then he says to his disciples, as he meets them, the resurrected Christ, he says, peace be with you. They're able to draw close to him without fear. Knowing that Jesus had, as he promised, prepared a place for them in his eternal kingdom. Opened up the way for us to know God again as our heavenly father, not a, not a fearful judge who will judge us by his law but the one who gave his son to die under that law, to fulfill every demand of that law for us, that we might be forgiven on the basis of his blood shed for us, that we might have new life in his new life, his resurrection. Have you come to God on his terms? I mean, maybe you're like one of those People I spoke to of my friend back at university. You know, I'm a good guy. 
I'll be okay with God at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, I'm heading for heaven. Well, friends like Israel, we've all missed the mark. None of us, none of us can justify ourselves before God. No good work can deal really with the problem of our deep-rooted sin that stains our hearts before him. The fact that we do not want to and have not honoured him as we should. No, our only hope is his love to us in Jesus. His mercy as one who, as we trust in Christ, will, will clothe us in his righteousness. That we would stand before God holy on the basis of what Jesus has done. Friends, if you have not yet trusted in Christ as your only hope to know God, and be secure in him. Friends, please start depending on Jesus today. Confess to him your sin. And receive him, bow the knee to him as Lord. And enjoy the assurance that only his cross can bring. And for those of us who have. Who are living with Jesus as Lord. Well, are we living for God? On his terms. Are we living for God on his terms? Hebrews is clear. Our our only hope for heaven comes by faith in Jesus and that alone. But as those who have been purchased by his blood, we now belong to him. We are his people. And God in his mercy and faithfulness, he's poured his spirit into our hearts. So that unlike Israel, we have the power to desire Christ. And honour and love and delight in him instead of the slavery of our sin. That's why in Hebrews 12, those verses of comfort of of what Christ has done, and the fact that we're reconciled to God on the basis of his work, those verses, they're surrounded by exhortations for us to now live holy lives. Now that we are saved, now that we've been set apart for Jesus as Lord, now we will not honour him perfectly, We will not be free from the very presence of sin in every way in this life. And we will continue to have an advocate in heaven if we sin. But God has not saved us for that. No, he has saved us to know and enjoy him. To be holy as he is holy. And that is the mark of a a genuine faith in Christ. That we are growing in our holiness in the ways that we think and the ways that we desire and the words that we use and the inclinations that we follow and the actions that we commit. But they are holy. So much so that we read in Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Just as Israel are called to be holy, now we, by the power of God's Spirit, are called to be the same. And it's not just for our good. Oh yes, God's way is the best, but it's not just for the good of his people that he has saved. See, remember as Israel failed to be holy, well, they failed to be God's witnesses to the nations. But for us who now know God by his Son, our words and our deeds, our very lives are to testify to him and to the goodness of his grace, as we seek to, to love and serve others according to his will, whether we're loved in return or not, because he's loved us 
My friend once ran a, a course for those investigating the Christian faith, and a, a number of his church members brought non-Christian friends. And over the weeks, they, they read the Bible together, and they got to know one another. And they, they would often go out for a meal after the study each week, and they, they built really good relationships. And after, uh, but there was one guy, uh, uh, there was one guy that just really, he was just really difficult. He would constantly disrupt uh, the, the group sharing times. Uh, it's not that he just, it's not that he disagreed with what was being said. He was just really nasty in the way he went about dressing down my friend and the other Christians in that group and, and mocking them. And after the course, uh, my friend, well, believed, well, that one guy, the guy that was so difficult, he'd never see him again, surely. And yet that one guy, the one guy who had been a real pain throughout the whole course, was there a few weeks later at church on, that sun, on a Sunday. And my friend seeing him was... <laughs> so surprised and a little bit concerned so he approached the guy and and as nicely as possible he he asked him why are you here you know given how negative he had been before my friend was concerned are you just here to make things you know difficult in our meeting and the guy confessed to him i'm not here to cause trouble i'm, I'm just here because you know the course is over now and i really miss you guys you were so warm and kind and gracious with me. You were so patient. Despite my views and the way that I expressed them, I can't believe you put up with me, but you did. I've never experienced that kind of grace before. I just really miss spending time with you guys. And my friend never expected to see that guy again. But God used the, the godly, the holy behavior of the church members that attended that course with that difficult man to draw him to church. Where he would go on and continue to hear the gospel and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Friends, God has called us out of the darkness of sin to be his holy people and witnesses to the world. That world still lost desperate need of a saviour. Holiness is foundational for our witness to the gospel, not only as we speak the words, but as we live lives worthy of the salvation we've received in Christ and so show something of the love that he's shown us to others, which is so attractive to a world living in sin, in self-centeredness. Well, Pray that God, by his grace, might draw lost sinners to Christ through our example. Here at Smack, as we do live those holy lives, as those saved in Jesus' blood. Let me just close with these words from Hebrews 12, verse 28. This exhortation and encouragement. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray.